God, we just thank you. We thank you for this day, God. We thank you for this body. We thank you for all the people that you have gathered here, God, that we would be able to hear from you, God. Would you just anoint him with your Holy Spirit, God? Would you give him the words that are from you? God, would you keep, uh, keep all the aspects of him in your hand in this moment? God, may his words be yours. And may our hearts be set on you to listen, receive, and then do, God. May we not just let these words fall on deaf ears, but God, may we act accordingly to your spirit's conviction. God, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hear me? Hear me now? Good. All right. This is episode nine in our uh, mini-series through the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, when we last left our friends in the nation of Israel, we were looking at their response to um, wanting a king. And what happened was, Samuel was the guy who was judging the nation of Israel. He's basically ruling. He was sort of the military slash religious ruler of Israel. He was judging them. They had no king except for who? God. God was their king, right? Um, that was God's vision. As a matter of fact, in Exodus, God told them, you, will be, you shall be a kingdom and priest to me. Be a nation of kings. You guys are all little kings, but I'm the big king. You don't have a human king ruling over you. You have a little judge, and the judge basically goes back and forth between you and God. That was God's vision for Israel. Well, um, the people of Israel decided that when Samuel's time was over, his time in office was over, Samuel's two sons were, um, they were not as righteous as he was. They took bribes, they perverted justice. So they went to Samuel and said, listen, you're awesome, but your sons are terrible. We want a king. Now, what we said was they had a valid argument to say they didn't want Samuel's sons to be judges. What they should have said was, go, let's all pray together and have God elect for us new judges. Instead, what they wanted was a king. And Samuel was displeased with this, not because they said something bad about his kids, but because they were rejecting God. So Samuel goes to God and said, listen, these horrible people, they want a king. God says, they're not rejecting you, Samuel, they're rejecting me. And he said, listen, before I give them a king, I want you to go in front of the people and tell them how horrible the king is going to be. So Samuel proceeds to gather all the leaders of the tribes and says, okay, you guys are upset because these two guys wanted to take bribes and pervert justice. Let me explain to you what the king is going to do to your life. He's going to take your sons and daughters. Okay, Your sons are going to run before his chariots. Your daughters are going to be making perfume and all this other stuff for him. He's going to take your best vineyards. He's going to have a political cabinet. And he's going to take all the best of the land and give it to his friends. And he said, you yourselves will become the slaves of this king. Now, think about this logically. You got a group of people who are taking bribes. That's not good, okay? And then you have, other, then you have this other guy who not only takes, he doesn't need to take bribes because he's going to charge you a tenth. I forgot to tell you that. This guy's going to charge you a tenth. He's going to tax you 10% of all your income. So he doesn't need to take bribes because he's going to work that into his system. He's going to take all your vineyards, the best of your vineyards, and the best of your flock. Now, if the reason was they didn't like the corruption of the judges, surely they would have turned around and said, okay, we don't want the king. But what they did was they said, yep, that's terrible, we still want the king. 
And what happened was, what they said at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 8 was, we want a king like what? All the nations around us. And what we said was, this was horrible because part of their national identity was that Israel was supposed to be different from all the nations around them. Right? So we left off with Israel demanding a king, completely rejecting God, knowing the disaster that the king would bring upon their nation. Now, as we go to 1 Samuel chapter 9, uh, one of the things that we always say is that the Bible is not a gossip manual, it is a mirror. Meaning, when God shows us horrible things about people, he's not saying, hey, come over here and listen to this horribleness that these people did. What God is doing is he's saying, do you not see yourself in these people? Because we talked about this last week. We said all of us are like this. We all have other kings and all these other rulers that rule our lives, whether it be a relationship or a chemical or a person or a, an idea, whatever. Everybody is struggling with making sure that Jesus maintains his proper place in our lives. So, the narrative in chapter 8 ends with Samuel saying, all right, guys, you all go to your respective towns. God is going to give you your king that you asked for. So, 1 Samuel chapter 9 opens up with a continuation of the story from last week. There is a man of Benjamin. Now, remember, Israel, the nation of Israel is comp comprised of 12 tribes, right? One of those tribes is uh, Benjamin. Benjamin was actually a very, very, very small tribe, not very big. Um, that's what we're starting out with. So there's a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Becherah, son of Aphia, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. So this guy Kish is being introduced to us, and we find out that he's a wealthy guy. He's rich. So he's from a small tribe, but he's rich. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now Saul, I'm going to introduce a spoiler here. I usually let the story develop, but I'm going to give you a spoiler. Saul is going to be the guy that gets anointed the king. Okay? So uh, and here, here's something that's very interesting. If you didn't know Hebrew... The word Shaul, or Saul, actually means what? Nobody knows. I can't believe you guys don't know what the name means. The name Saul, watch this, means asked for or prayed for. That's what the name Saul means. Now, that's ironic, obviously, right? Because the people asked for a king, and then in the next chapter, we're introduced to a guy named Saul whose name means asked for. So, there you go. I don't know what you want to do with that, but there it is. So, Saul, Mr. Asked For, is a handsome man. Now listen, what we're seeing is a, a kid that's from a rich family who's very tall, very physically gifted, and good looking. So by all accounts, he's the perfect candidate for who you would want to be a king, yeah? But we just heard in chapter 8 that he was going to be a monster. Samuel said, whoever you have to rule over you is going to do all these horrible things to your nation. So on the one hand, <clears throat> you're seeing this guy Saul, and on outside appearance, you're saying, man, this guy should be the guy. He's big, he's tall, he's good looking, and he's rich. So he should be the king. 
There's a warning in this description for us, by the way. <clears throat> How many of us, when we're looking at leaders, are concerned about the spirituality of the person that's leading us? How many of us are actually concerned? Now, oh, I'm going to do it, Kyle. <laughs> Listen to me. Oh, I'm going to do it. You got a guy who's running for president right now who says the most insane, crazy, terrible things about everybody in America. And he's ahead in the polls. Why? Because he's rich. He knows how to run his business. He's not that articulate. But we're, we're making decisions as a nation about people by their appearance. We're, 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 he's not good looking. Uh, yeah, you're right. Not good looking. But uh, you, you see what I'm saying to you? <clears throat> now, now, that individual who I didn't name, so I'm not in trouble, is an extreme example, okay? But this is what we do. When we look at somebody and, oh, they're good looking, okay, yeah, that's the guy we should follow. So we've already been told in 1 Samuel chapter 8 that this guy is going to be a disaster for your nation. But hey, he's good looking, he's tall, and he's rich. Okay, let's keep reading. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, take one of the young men with you and arise, go look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalishah, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalaim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. Okay, now this tells us something about Saul. Now, I've already said that Saul's kingdom is going to end badly. I've already said that Saul is going to do horrible things to the nation. I've already said that Saul's uh, authority and his position was going to go to his head and he was going to enslave the entire nation. But... Look how he starts. So far, so good. His dad loses a couple donkeys, and his dad says, Hey, Saul, go, go find the donkeys. And he's walking all around the hill country. What does this tell us about Saul? <clears throat> he's an obedient son. Right now, so far, so good. He's an obedient son. You know, there's something good about that, children. You know, if, you're, if your parents tell you to do something... It is a good thing to listen to mom and dad. So right now, Saul is somebody we can point to and say, hey, this, this young man is exemplary. So Saul and his buddy are walking through the entire hill country looking for these donkeys, and you never really hear him complain. He does what his father tells him to do immediately. He's an obedient guy. He's a humble dude. So far, so good. Let's keep reading. Verse 5, when they came to the land of Zeus, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. Okay, so Saul, not only is he an obedient son, but he's also a considerate son. Because, <clears throat> this tells us he's got a good relationship with his father. <laughs> the irony, I hope everybody feels the irony of <laughs> <laughs> but we love kids here at Cell 53. Wouldn't have it any other way. That's Cole. That's my little buddy. He's a good kid. All right. So Saul is a guy, not only does he obey his dad, but he's considerate. He says, look, man, if we keep walking around here, dad's going to start worrying about us because we are more valuable to him than the donkeys. So 
So this gives you a picture of a father and son relationship that is awesome. This is a good relationship. By the way, parents, do your kids know that they are more valuable to you than your property or your things or your job or whatever? You see, Saul knew that his dad loved him more than his donkey. Now, let me explain something to you. You know, not a lot of people in the ancient Near East had pets. You know, this was your livelihood. He's looking for these donkeys. These donkeys were his livelihood. So what Saul is saying is, is, I know dad. I know my dad. I grew up with my dad, and dad loves me more than his livelihood. So if it's between me and the donkeys, dad wants us back. He doesn't even want to worry about us. Let's go back. And I hope, brothers, and you need to help me with this, and I hope you can get help from this too, from everybody else. I hope that we're creating the type of environments and we're saying the words to our kids that they know that they are loved. You know, it's an old school like fathering, like you don't tell them that you love them, you just show them that you love them. That's not good. Don't just show them you love them. Tell them that you love them. Vocalize to them that they're important to you. Use words. Yes, actions are important. Actions are absolutely important. But your actions are supposed to back up your words. If you don't use words, this is not good. So it's awesome that you take care of your kids and you provide for them and all the rest of it. But if you're not vocalizing to them that you love them and that they are a priority to you, you got a problem. So it looks like this, in this relationship, Saul and Kish had a pretty good relationship and Kish vocalized to him. Yes, I'm reading into the text, but Saul understands that his father loves him more than what he can produce. Now, Listen to what the servant says. But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says come true. So now, let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. So this servant says, Yeah, man, I, I see the point. However, we might have a solution. There's a guy here who's a man of God. He's a man of God in our city, and yeah, the donkeys are lost. We're looking for something, but if we go to him, he's going to direct us in the way we should go. Now, here's, a, here's an interesting question, and I'm going to open this up to you too, ladies. At work, when people are lost, you understand what I'm saying to you? Lost or missing something. Do they know that there's a man of God at work or a woman of God at work? In your family, when people are lost or they're missing something, do they know that there's a man of God or a woman of God in your family that you could go to and they will help you find that? You understand what I'm saying to you? People are lost. They have no direction, have no idea where they're going. You're looking for something dissatisfied all the time. They know something is missing and they're running around looking for it. Do they know to go to you because you know where to find what they're looking for? See, this is why what Tim said is vitally important. Are you a man or a woman who is so plugged into God, you know, like he said, that people go, what's wrong with you? Or what's right with you? Or that's a man of God. That's a woman of God. You see, this is so vital. 
Yes, it's good to have a personal relationship with God. Yes, it's good to be plugged. What did you call it? The current, the electricity. That's good for you. But it's also good for everybody around you. I like the light bulb thing because, look, your, your workplace is dark. And there you are, the light bulb. People go, you know, you want some direction, you're going to go toward light. You know, this happens all the time. I've known people at work who don't even have to evangelize. But they're just so godly that people go up to them when they're in some horrible crisis. People go to them, they say, man, I am completely and totally lost. For some reason, I think you have some solution, some answer. And we got to be men and women of God. There's a lot of things riding on whether or not you are plugged into Christ. Now, to, to piggyback off of what Tim said, I'm not saying be a better person or all, all the rest of the craziness that happens when you go to church. What I'm telling you is, I want, and notice, he's described as a man of God. He's a guy that's connected to God. He's not described as a righteous man. I'm sure he was a righteous man. He's not described as a moral man. I'm sure he was a moral man. But he's described as a man of God. Because they look at him and go, okay, that's a dude that's connected to God. People look at you that way. And that's a, that's a young lady that's connected to God. They're connected to some source of light that gives them direction and I want to know how to get there. So there's, and by the way, the guy they're talking about is Samuel. I think everybody knows that. Right? It's Samuel. They're talking about Samuel. He's a man of God. Now, let's keep reading. <clears throat> then Saul said to her servant, now this is interesting. What if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul, Here I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell our way. Now, boy. Okay. Uh, in those times when you would go to see uh, a person who was religious or the, the person who was connected to God, you have to understand something. Um, not everybody was connected to God in the way that they are now after Jesus Christ has come into the world. You had specific people who were known as the men of God or the prophets or whatever. And they had this relationship with God that generally nobody else could have. And so what you would do is you would go to them to seek God, but you generally would come with something to give to them. It was sort of like an exchange. Now, you're going to notice in this, the rest of this chapter, Samuel doesn't take any money from Saul. As a matter of fact, the man of God actually gives to Saul. If we get that far in the chapter, we'll see. So Samuel doesn't take anything from Saul. But what's interesting is, in, in religion, in the world, uh, you have religious leaders who that's what they're interested in is money. Um, look, there's a bunch of reasons we don't have money here in cell 53. Um, one of which is we don't want to make people who are um, struggling with drug addiction have that temptation at all. But the other is is that uh, we're not really concerned about it. You know, Brian and I and Kyle and Matt, we're not worried about how much you can give us. We feel our job is to pour into you guys. Now, that's not to say that it's wrong, okay? But we all know that in religion, fleecing people in exchange for spiritual direction is something that religious people do. I mean, we know that. Uh, the first time I did my sermon... Uh, the pastor took me aside and said, man, 
I can see that you're, you're gifted, you're anointed, you're going to be doing this. And he said, uh, he said that he gave me three things to worry about. And the number one thing was money. He said, be careful about the temptation of money. I have seen money do horrible things to churches. Let me just say it that way. Now, their assumption is this guy is going to want some money. He's going to want something from us. Here's another thing, men and women of God. Aside from money, when you see people in your workplace or in your family, what do you want from them? Are there conditions in your life for people to get around you? They got to give to you something. You know, you, you have some sense of entitlement with people that you're not going to relate well to them on, unless they're giving you a 50-50 exchange. You know, I'm being nice to you at work. I'm always saying good things to you at work. You need to give back to me. Do you go into your workplace or your family as a believer in Christ saying, you know what? In Jesus, I have everything. Nobody needs to give me anything. I'm so connected to God that I don't need reciprocity. I don't need payback from anything or anyone. I can give as the Lord directs me to give. Now watch this. I'm not saying let yourself be taken advantage of. What I am saying is when you're in that environment and somebody's searching or God gives you an assignment, do you complete that assignment, satisfied that that's what God wanted you to do, or are you finding some way to get some payback somehow? That's a very different thing. Nobody has to pay us back anything. If you have an assignment for Christ, complete the assignment and be happy that God was speaking to you, number one, and number two, you're connected to Christ. But see, these people have the assumption that, well, if we're going to go to the man of God, we've got to give him something. This is how the world operates, by the way. You know, uh, how many times have we had discussions with people? You know, I, I had a guy come in here. He donated one time. He goes, look, how much do you guys charge for your sandwiches and stuff? We said nothing. He said, what? I said, nothing. We don't charge people anything. I said, as a matter of fact, we've never charged anybody anything since the beginning of this, this ministry here. And he couldn't believe it. Because he's like, surely if you're giving this much, you should be getting something back. Yeah, as Christians, what we get back is the opportunity to introduce somebody to Jesus. Is that truly, really your goal at work or in your family? Really? Now, watch this. Verse 9, formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, come, let us go to the seer. For today's prophet was formerly called a seer. So everybody's familiar with the term prophet. You know, a prophet is a person with a sort of direct relationship with God, would give the message to the people. Um, but before that, in the time of Samuel and the nation of Israel, they were called seers. And that's very interesting, right? Because what that's telling us is that they could see. Now, here's the deal. If it's just talking about natural seeing, that makes no sense. Because everybody can see unless you're blind. When a person is called a seer, what it means is they've got some sort of spiritual insight. They see things in the spiritual realm that other people don't. And this is very interesting. I was, I was smiling, Tim, when you were up there. Right? Because, yeah, we're in the physical realm, so I've got eyeballs. I can see you people, right? But some of you have pain in your soul right now. 
Some of you are angry about something right now. Some of you are depressed right now. Some of you are anxious about things right now. Now, which of you is that? I don't know. Well, I know. And some of you I don't. Because some of you, I've never seen you before. But I'm sure you got something swimming around in your soul, right? You see, that's, that's a different degree of seeing. So Samuel was so connected with God. Now, let me explain something to you. When you get connected with God, you not only feel the things God feels, but you begin to see the things God sees. You become a seer. Okay? So here's what happens. <clears throat> You're at work. And that person who's always angry and upset, then everybody at work talks about all the time because they're always angry. Or that family member that's always angry all the time. And in the natural, with your natural eyes, you're like, yeah, I don't understand why Susie's so miserable. Then you start getting connected with God. <clears throat> and God says, hey, do you see how at lunchtime Susie's always by herself? Do you, do you see how, you know, around, you know, yesterday Susie was doing fine and then she got a phone call and she was miserable for the rest of the day? See? See what happens? You start getting connected with God. You start seeing things that God sees spiritually. You see, we started this whole message with Samuel's outward appearance, right? And a man of God, one of the markers, a man or a woman of God, is that now we can see beyond just naturally. We can see we've got spiritual insight that can see beyond just what's happening in the natural realm. How many times when you get into one of those situations with somebody are you looking at things only from a natural perspective? I mean, how many people have you truly seen? You know, I was reading, uh, I was doing some research on uh, suicide. And uh, one of the, I was reading these notes and one of the notes that this kid left, he jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge. And he said, I am not going to jump today if one person smiles at me. And he ended up dead. And I thought to myself, would I have seen that kid and had the spiritual insight to smile at him or even recognize him? And I read that and I go, absolutely I would. I would. And God said to me, no, you wouldn't. He goes, you know why? Because what you would do, Andrew, is you'd be walking on, across that bridge with your headphones in your head, listening to a sermon. So you wouldn't even see that kid. You're always distracted by whatever. Now listen, listening to sermons isn't bad, okay? For me it is, because I listen to too many of them, and sometimes I miss people. But think about that. You know how many thousands of people are in California? This kid was just walking by. Nobody noticed him. And do we see people? Are you a seer? Now look, in the Old Testament, before Jesus showed up, you know, you had one seer per town or whatever, right? But in the New Testament, the Spirit of God comes into your life and activates you, and all of us have no excuse not to be seers, Right? Now, we know in spiritual gifts, there's some people who are gifted prophetically. I understand that. Okay? Okay. But, 
all of us ought to have some supernatural spiritual insight into people. We're Christians. We're supernaturalists. We're not just regular people. So, Samuel is a seer. He sees things. Now, Saul said to his servant, well said, come, let's go. And so they went to the city where the man of God was. Now, isn't that interesting? Saul is about to become the king. Okay? He doesn't know it yet. He has no idea. He, his father loses these donkeys. He acts in obedience to go look for the donkeys. He said, let's turn around. And they just happen to end up in the city where the man of God is. How interesting. How interesting. Now, now look, you know, I'm a big believer in the sovereignty of God, okay? So, so like, for example, the elections, all right? Uh, I was watching the debate yesterday. I was a little worried, okay? I'm not going to lie. I was worried. Um, I was like, man, that, that guy could probably be the next leader of our country. I was worried. But, you know, I'm going to serve a sovereign God, all right? So I'm not completely worried. But think about this. Why didn't God just show up to, to Saul and say, hey, Saul, I'm God. They asked for you. Boom, you're the king. God could have done that. Why go through all the rigmarole of having his dad lose the donkeys and then they end up in the city? Obviously, the hand of God was behind this from beginning to end. And think about this. Think about all the secondary things that needed to happen for those donkeys to get let loose. Maybe the gate broke. Uh, maybe the, the guy who was watching them fell asleep. We don't know. But there's a whole bunch of things that had to happen for those donkeys to get loose. Think about the sovereignty of God. Now listen, many of you, you know, you say, man, I don't have like this big, giant, dramatic testimony. You know, some of us here have dramatic, crazy testimonies. God did amazing things. And then the rest of us were like, man... I mean, I got saved when I was nine, and bleh. You don't have the crazy testimony. But look, if you were to go to Saul and say, man, how did you become king? Like, what happened? What would he say to you? Some big dramatic event? No, he'd say, well, I mean, my dad's donkeys got lost, and me and my buddy, we went, and then there's a town, and blah, blah. What's God showing us? Hey, you know what? Sometimes... He does show up in crazy, dramatic ways, okay, and will part the Red Sea and come down and say, yo, I'm God. And there are other times where God will say, hey, if you're watching and you're paying attention, you will see how I weaved events in your life to bring you to myself. So if you've got just a regular testimony, okay, that isn't dramatic, it is no less glorious than the person with the dramatic, crazy testimony. You know, Saul got saved. Um, he was on his way to murdering Christians, right? How did Peter get saved? Well, Peter was just a pretty God-fearing Jew, and then he showed up and saw Jesus. Nothing really dramatic. Now, are we going to say that God loves Saul or Paul better than Peter? No. They both did amazing things for the gospel. So some of us here have dramatic testimonies. Others of us, we got saved because the donkey got lost and we ended up in a city and he ran into a prophet. Both of them are amazing. Look at the sovereignty of God. Here's the second thing. The, the lost donkeys were an inconvenience. Now, like we said, Saul didn't complain, but think about it. I'm sure there are other things that he had rather have done with his time than to go looking for some donkeys. You know, there are inconveniences in your life. 
There are things that you wish you didn't have to do or go through in your life. And if you don't understand that God is sovereignly behind it, you will be so busy, worried about the fact that you're inconvenienced or that you're hurt or whatever, that you will miss out on the adventure. You know, the next time you get inconvenienced, what if we said, okay, God, what are you trying to do here? Like, what city am I going to end up in here? What if the next time some horrible thing happened in your life and you got massively wounded, you were, instead of just focusing on the fact that you got massively wounded, what if you were to say, okay, God, I know I serve a sovereign God. You've got some purpose in here somewhere. See, the sovereignty of God is not just some crazy doctrine. Or it's not some doctrine for really super smart, heady people. No, the sovereignty of God is for those boring, mundane days. It gives meaning to your boring days. It will give meaning to your inconveniences. And it will save your life when you are wounded, literally. Man, we got a sovereign God who brought us all here with a mixture of wounds, inconveniences, Pants. Think about all the things that conspired to bring you to this moment right now. You know, I was born in Kingston, Jamaica. My mom and dad, uh, awesome Christians, God bless both of them, but they couldn't get along. My mom ended up in America. How much of this am I going to share? The first time I saw my mom and dad together, I never saw my mom and dad together. I think I was around five years old. My cousin was in the room, and my cousin said, hey, man, that's your mom walking down the driveway. I said, really? i never seen her before. So I ran outside. I said, hey, are you my mom? She said, yes, I'm your mom. I said, whoa, this is cool. This is my mom. I finally have a mom. Other people had moms. I didn't have a mom. Now I have my mom. Well, <clears throat> 10 minutes later, my dad rolled up, um, and that, that did not go well. It got physical. And then my uncle rolled up, and he saw my dad getting physical with my mom, so he got physical with my dad. So I'm watching all this happen, like, literally right in front of me. This is the first time I'm seeing my mom. Uh, like I said, both awesome Christians, you know, people, people make mistakes. Uh, and after that, long story short, my mother basically kidnapped my brother and I and, and took, us to, took us to Maine. All right? On Jamaica to Maine, boom, here we are. And then we moved all around the, the eastern side of the United States. And literally, this is what would happen. We'd be in Biddeford, Maine. This is literally a true story. We woke up. My mom said, guess what, kids? We're going to Florida. Like that. Middle of school year, whole nine yards. We're going to Florida. So we get packed in the car. Three days later, there we are in Palm Bay, Florida. And then she'd say, guess what, guys? And we'd say, what? What are we doing? We're going to New Jersey. Okay, we're going to New Jersey. Now, in the middle of all that craziness, we went from four cars in the garage, uh, living in, you know, making 600 grand a year, literally into a homeless shelter. It was me, my three brothers, and my mom in a literally like this big, okay? Well, my mom, she got herself together and we ended up in New York City, okay? New York City. Stayed in New York City for a couple years, met my wife. And here's a funny thing. I'm just going to tell the story. Okay, so here's what happened. Uh, there's a lot of gangs in the inner city of New York, okay? And there were certain colors you were not supposed to wear, red being one of them, 
But I was a fool. I was a tough guy. If I was a tough dude, I'm like, I'm tough. I'm not worried about any of these gangs. So I saw these shoes, these red shoes, you know. I'm like, I'm going to buy these red shoes because nobody else in the school will wear them because they're afraid of the gangsters, right? I buy these red shoes, um, and then I walk in, and there's this girl in, the, in class that has the exact same shoes. Who would have thought? Look at the coincidence. Well, it turned out to be her. That's my wife. I, so I started talking to her. I said, hey, we got the same shoes. And she kind of looked at me like that, like that. And she said, yeah, whatever. Okay, long story short, I found my wife because of these red shoes. Coincidence. She said, I don't want to live in the Bronx anymore. The Bronx is a horrible place. I said, you know what? Let's move to Maine. Because I had, you know, I had known Maine because when I got kidnapped, he ended up in Maine. This is all true. All true story. So we end up in Maine, okay? And here we are, cell 53, right? I'm just, I'm just one story, okay? Now, I remember being a kid. I'd make friends, and then, boom, literally the next day, they'd be gone. I'd never see them again. I'd be driving, and, well, my mom'd be driving. I was like, God, why are you doing this to me? I'm a little kid crying, right? Now, nobody came and sat me down and explained to me the sovereignty of God. Nobody said, listen, man, there's a plan, okay? There's this church. You know, you're going to need to go all, through all these things so that you can help minister to people and things like that. He never told me that. Nobody told me that. And I don't know why you're going through the things that you're going through. The inconveniences, the wounds, and the heartache. I don't know, but I do know there's a purpose for it. You've never went through anything randomly ever in your life. It's going somewhere. Some of it will be dramatic. Some of it will be traumatic. Some of it will be boring, but it's going somewhere. So ask God, engage with God. Say, God, what are you doing here? Where are you going? Show me the, the thread here. What's going on? Where is this leading to? If you don't understand the sovereignty of God in your life, you're going to be tossed to and fro. When things go good for you, you're going to be happy. And then when things go bad for you, you're going to be sad. And when things get inconvenient, you're going to have a horrible attitude. And everybody around you will pay for it. All right. Let's keep reading. Verse 11. As they went up the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, is the seer here? They answered, he is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry. He has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now, this is a very interesting marker in the story because the people are waiting for Samuel to do the sacrifice. Hold on to that because that's going to become very, very important later on in the story. The people waited for Samuel to do the sacrifice. So the girls say, yeah, you're looking for the seer. He's here. Now, again... Samuel is not named at this point, but he has such a reputation as a man of God that when they say, where is the seer, they know exactly who he's talking about. They know exactly who he's talking about. Now, one of the reasons that they're waiting for him to do the sacrifice, they don't do the sacrifice themselves, is because, again, according to the Old Testament law, only certain people in Israel could do the sacrifice. You just willy-nilly couldn't do the sacrifice. You say, okay, well, that's good, Andrew. It's very good information. Uh, how is that relevant to me today? Well, here's a question. Uh, do we do sacrifices today? 
No. Yes, maybe. We'll see. Well, listen. What is the sacrifice that all of us are proclaiming? Jesus. Yeah? Jesus is a sacrifice all of us are proclaiming. So here's the thing. One of the markers of a, of a man or a woman of God, first, is that they're a seer. They have spiritual insight. Second, is that when the city needs a sacrifice, the man, in, the man of God is the one that delivers the sacrifice. Well, here's the deal. Does our city need a sacrifice still? Yes. Who's the sacrifice? Jesus. One of the things that's going to mark you as a man or woman of God is you know how to apply the sacrifice of Christ, the cross of Christ, to people's situations. So let's go back to our friend in the lunchroom. She's always there by herself. And you're going to come to her and you're going to sit next to her because you're a seer, right? You're not going to treat her like everybody else does because you see spiritually, right? We're, we're, we're Christians. But then what are you going to do? Are you going to sit there and give her psychobabble? Listen, your psychobabble is not going to help her. Jesus is going to help her. There are things that have been done to her and things that she has done that can only be solved by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So I'm coming to you. I'm sitting next to you at the lunch table. Yes. I'm going to be your friend, man, but I'm going to come to you with some good news, with the gospel, with the blood of Jesus Christ, who will take down any separation you have with God. Because I can assure you, once that girl at the lunch table gets connected with God, she's going to be fine. I didn't say that her circumstances were going to change, but what I did say was, once she gets connected with God, she's going to have everything she actually truly needs. Well, she cannot do that unless she hears about the sacrifice of Christ. So, in order to be men and women of God, we've got to have spiritual insight, and we also need to be people that come with the sacrifice. Now, let's keep reading. Now, the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel. Now, Samuel is a man of God. He's a seer. Tomorrow about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. Now this is amazing, the grace of God. So what we said last week was that the, the man for a king was actually their rejection of him. Their asking for a king was actually their rejection of God. So God comes to Samuel and he says, listen, tomorrow I'm going to send you this guy and the reason I'm sending to you because I've heard the cry of my people. They want a king, I'm going to make sure to give them a king. Now, this is very gracious for God to do. You say, well, I mean, they were rejecting him. Mm-hmm. And God still loved his people. Let, let, let me ask you a question. Was there another time when the people of God rejected their king? I agree with you. Heather? So there's Jesus. Pilate said, okay, there's Barabbas, and there's Jesus. Who do you want? They said, give us Barabbas. Pilate said, Barabbas, this guy is the king of the Jews. Shall I crucify your king? What do they say? We have no king but Caesar. Now, what does Jesus end up saying on the cross? Father, destroy all these people. Is that what he said? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. See that? When Jesus is rejected as king, he is praying on behalf 
of the people. When God is here rejected his king, he says, I'm going to set it up. I've heard the cry of my people. This is the grace of God. Let me ask you a question. When people reject you, how do you treat them? People reject you. What's your attitude toward them? Now, you have every right in the world, because you got rejected, you have every right in the world to have a horrible attitude and be hateful and mean. That's your right as a human being. Sure. But we're Christians. Man, if you're connected to the source, God's character hasn't changed from Old or New Testament. Even in the face of the rejection of the people of Israel, God is still good to his people. Man, you've got to still be good to the people that will reject you in your life. Because that reflects the character of God. And I'll push it even a step further. If you're truly and totally connected to God, you will not be able to help but to be good to the people who reject you. See, I don't think Jesus was on the cross going, oh, okay, I'm going I'm to forgive them. I don't think so. I think it just came out as instinct. And if you're connected to God, you will deal with rejection with grace on instinct. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, here's the man of whom I spoke to you. He it, is, he it, is, he, it is he who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is in your mind. As for the donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? So Samuel sees Saul and he says, hey man, I've got a dinner set for you. And man, you are the desire of Israel. Remember, they asked for a king. Your name is asked for. You're the desire of Israel. Saul, Samuel does not look at Saul and go, this is a nasty guy. This is a nasty guy. He doesn't do that. Now listen. Uh, did Samuel know that they're asking for a king was bad? Yes. But you know what happened? God said, I'm going to give the king. And so Samuel followed God. And when God gives a decision that you don't agree with, how do you deal with it? So, for example, I alluded to a certain individual, and I said, man, I hope that guy doesn't get the presidency. But if he does, I'm commanded scripturally to what? Pray for him. You know, we've got a president right now, and probably the majority of us don't agree with many of his policies. How many of us have spent more time talking about him to other people instead of praying for him? Our Christian duty is to pray for our leaders, not to mock them. Now, I, I am not like Samuel right now. I gotta repent, because I'm telling y'all to be like that, so I can't. No. But I'm not like that. I see a guy, and he's terrible, and I go, man, you're a terrible leader, you're horrible, blah, 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 blah. And I get my friends together and we mock him. Ah, let's mock the leader. Okay? Well, wait a second. The scripture says God put that dude in authority. And for whatever reason, God put the guy there. Our job is not to sit there and judge God's decision. I hope you realize that. When you're mocking the leader that God put in place, all you're doing is you're judging God's decision. Ladies, oh, this is going to get hard. Your husband is the leader that God put in your family. 
So if your husband is not leading well, I mean, yeah, I mean, you have, you have the right to say and do whatever you want, okay, humanly speaking, but we're not just speaking as humans, we're Christians. Ladies, I hope you're not judging God's decision. You ought to be praying for your husband more than you're talking about him, yeah? These are the leaders that God put in your life. Children, your dad's not doing well. You have a Christian duty to pray for your dad. So Saul looks at a leader who he knows is not God's perfect will for the nation, and he knows is full of character flaws, but he says, man, I got a place for you, and he commends him. The first thing that Saul hears from the mouth of Samuel is, man, the whole, the whole, the whole nation wants you, man. And he commends him, even though he does not agree with the fact that he's going to be king. And by the way, this is a guy who's going to be replacing him as a leader of Israel. Imagine that. So let's say that you're a manager somewhere, and they say to you, look, man, we're firing you in two months. There's this other guy. We want you to go and train that guy. That was basically what Samuel's job was for Saul. The nation said, we don't want you anymore. We want this guy. And God said, yep. And you're going to anoint him king, and you're going to train, and you're going to advise him. You're going to disciple this guy. So Saul was, Samuel was more concerned with God's will than his own ego. This is a challenge for us. Because Samuel could have easily spiritualized his ego, couldn't he? He could have said, I'm not going to be nice to this guy and develop this guy. He's not what God wants. So he's got some spiritual reason for why he's not going to go and obey God. Be careful. Be very, very careful. Your boss at work is put over you by the will of God. Your husband is put over you by the will of God. Your dad is put over you by the will of God. Be careful of judging God's decisions. You're not smarter than him. Some of you are very smart. You're not smarter than God. You're just not. All right, let's keep reading. How does Saul respond? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? So far, so good. Saul doesn't say, Of course. Of course. I'm taller than everybody. I'm good looking. Yes. Hey. Saul doesn't say that. He says, what, what, No, man. I, I, I'm not qualified for this. He say, oh, he's really humble. Well, is that true? Is his, was his clan the smallest of all the clans and of, of the least repute? Well, he was right and he was wrong. It is true the Benjaminites were small. But we were told earlier that his father was a real rich dude. So it's not true that his clan was the smallest of the clans of Benjamin. What does the scripture tell us? Man, you need to judge yourself with a sober judgment. Don't think too highly of yourself. And don't think too lowly of yourself. Saul had natural gifts that God gave him. And then there are other things that were... He also had limitations. The limitations were he were from the tribe of Benjamin. Now listen to me. I, according to you guys, am a gifted speaker. Okay? I can speak. I can talk to people. I'm not a gifted singer. So you will not see me with a microphone during worship time. It's not going to happen. Because I want you to worship. I don't want you to cry. <laughs> 
So I'm not a gifted singer, but I can speak, okay? All right. Now, some of you can speak, you're not gifted. Some of you can sing, you're not gifted speakers, okay? It's just not your thing. All right? Now, what happens in churches is everybody wants kind of the, the, the spotlight, okay? So you'll, you'll have people that, are like, desperately want to get up and, and speak for a long time, and you're like, oh, it's not, it's not your thing. Or they'll do the American Idol thing with worship. Like, no, it's not your thing, man. God wants to hear your worship. And that's it. You no mic for you. Be sober. <laughs> Be sober in your judgments, okay? God has given you gifts, and he's also given you limitations. And this is the beauty of the church of Jesus Christ. Because in your gifts, right, the gifts that God has given you will make up for the limitations somebody else has and vice versa. Okay, so Kyle's the singer, and I'm the speaker. Okay? It's a beautiful thing. The reason that God gives us gifts and limitations is because he wants us all to do this thing together. I have been ministering in downtown Lewiston for the last decade by myself, and I saw zero fruit. And the minute I got a team together, this happened. There's a lesson there, Andrew. Can't do everything yourself. We can't do everything ourselves. So yeah, yeah, dude, you're from a small tribe, but your dad's rich and you're taller than everybody. So you're the king, man. That's your job. That's what you're supposed to do. So we're not going to come up with, with a bunch of arrogance and delusion and say that we're awesome when we're horrible at things, but we're not going to come with false humility either. It's not humble to deny the gifts that God has given you. Right? That's not humility. Okay? That's actually, it's just dishonest. All right? If you have clear and obvious gifts in something, don't say that you don't have the gift. Doesn't make any sense. All right. <clears throat> then Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them to the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about 30 people. And Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion I gave you, of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up a leg and what was on it and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, See, what was kept is set before you to eat. Eat, because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guests. So what Samuel is trying to do with Saul is convince him, look, man, I had already set this up from yesterday. This is a supernatural thing. God told me about you, and there were already things in place so that when you showed up, now here we are eating, man. Like, you're the guy. And he sets him at the head of the table. Why does he do that? Well, one, again, to get Saul used to the role of taking leadership and also to introduce the 30 people there to this concept of this guy is going to be your leader. This is Samuel honoring somebody who is going to take his place. You know, Scripture says that we're supposed to outdo one another in what? Showing honor. So earlier in the text, we were told that Samuel was a man that was honored by the people, right? What did Samuel do with the honor that he had with the people? He used that honor to place the honor onto somebody else. So if you're in work or your family or your church and you've been given a position of honor, what are you supposed to do with the honor that God has given you? Use it to honor somebody else. This is a lesson Samuel is teaching us. He's the honored man among the people, and what he does is he gives the honor to other people. You cannot do this consistently unless you're connected to Christ. And what we're being called to do here with Samuel's example is literally impossible unless we're connected to Jesus. Because all of us are egomaniacs. You say, no, I'm not. 
The very fact that you said, no, I'm not, means that you're an egomaniac. You shouldn't disagree with me. All of us are self-centered, and all of us want the pat on the back, and all of us want to be respected. It's not bad to be respected. How many of us are waking up and looking around and saying, okay, who can I bestow honor on today? Which one of my brothers and sisters can I bestow honor on today? Samuel had every reason in the world to not honor Saul. He was younger than him. He had problems. We knew that. And he was occupying a position that was wrong. And yet still, Samuel found a way to honor him. Look, you can find ways to dishonor people and justify them. Again, spiritualize your dishonoring of people. You can do that. That's completely a total natural thing to do. One of the ways you can know if you're operating in the spirit versus operating in the flesh is if you're doing things that are only explainable by Jesus. It's easy to dishonor people who are dishonorable. It's very difficult to honor people who you feel don't deserve to be honored. So Saul ate with Samuel that day, and when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to pass on before us, and when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I make that I may make known to you the word of God. What is Samuel going to tell Saul? Come back next week. Okay, so just, just in review. Number one, ladies and gentlemen, we need to be men and women of God. And if you're a man and woman of God, everybody around you will know you as such. They don't even have to know your name, but they will know that there is something divine about you. Number two, we need to be seers. We need to have spiritual insight. Ask God to give you the wisdom to see people for who they really truly are, not just by what you can see with your physical eyeballs. Number three, we need to outdo one another in honoring each other. And number four, if uh, Donald Trump gets elected president, we need to we need to pray we need to pray for him and, and uh, praise God for him because it's God's decision. All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word. God, thank you for uh, showing us human nature again, God. We've got so far to go. God, help us to remember to just stay connected to you, God. God, work your fruits in us. We're in desperate need of it, and our city is des in desperate need of men and women and boys and girls of God who see. Help us to be that for the sake of our city and the sake of your great name. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from Cell 53, proclaiming the kingdom of God for the sake of the city. For more resources, visit cell53.com.